One announcement I did not uh, refer to earlier, but I'd like to emphasize it, and that is the special men's prayer meeting I announced last week. Uh, we're planning to meet here at the church at 9 a.m. next Saturday morning for an hour of prayer, especially to seek the Lord's blessing in way of reviving of His church, His cause here in other places. I do believe we really desperately need to see an unusual moving of God's Spirit. We need to see the Lord at work among us and uh, we need to pray to that end. So I am inviting other men who would like to join with me to meet here, come prepared to pray and uh, we'll begin, try and be prompt, we'll begin at 9 a.m. It's not a Bible study, an hour for prayer. So if you are burdened, for the need of God's Spirit to work, you please join us next Saturday morning. Now you remember if you were here last week, I began a brief series of messages on handling problems. We began last week by looking at certain basic principles, basic facts that we need to grasp and lay hold of. I express my indebtedness to Pastor Latimer much of this material having been conveyed to us uh, last year at one of our pastors conferences and uh, so I'm acknowledging that indebtedness again and I'm also acknowledging of course that I'm acting a little differently from usual in this series and that it's not expositional it is uh, thematic I'm endeavouring to deal with these themes because I think they're extremely important. So this morning, I want to consider together understanding our problems. How do we get insight into our problems? Now last week we considered first, everybody has problems. Let me just review. Everybody has problems. Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upwards. But secondly... Christians can solve their problems. 1 Corinthians 10.13 especially we looked at. No trial, no testing or temptation has taken you but which is common to man. God is faithful and so forth. Christians can solve their problems. Thirdly, that solving problems takes work. Don't look for magic answers and instant cures. Solving problems takes work. And fourthly, the word of God has the answer. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that the scriptures are not only given to us by inspiration to reveal the way of salvation, but they are given that we might be corrected, rebuked, corrected, instructed in righteousness, and made thoroughly equipped, that is made mature, rounded, whole, able for every good work. The word of God has the answers to our problems. Now today, we're going to try to shed some light on understanding problems and uh, we are going to look at four different perspectives in which problems arise or uh, levels at which we might meet them. And uh, we're all indebted here to Wayne Mack who was with us some years ago right in this church and at the Curry Conference several years ago and is very much involved in the Ministry of Counselling. Wayne Mack suggests that we may use an acrostic that will help us here. We may take the word each, E-A-C-H, the word each, 
and use these letters to speak to us about the various levels of problems. So, for instance, the letter E stands for the emotional level. E, emotional level. People experience disturbing emotions, right? They get depressed, or they get angry, they get bitter, they get lonely, they get feeling guilty. We have numerous examples, of course, of this in Scripture. We have a very sad but rather intriguing example of this in 1 Kings chapter 21. Those of you who are familiar with the Old Testament will remember the story of Ahab. And we read this remarkable and sad statement in 1 Kings 21 that Ahab, verse 4, Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he, that they had, lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat. He was in a state of depression. He was sullen, he was sulking. Certainly there was an emotional disturbance here. Judas, of course, is racked with guilt. In Matthew 27, verse 3, it says, he was full of remorse. Not repentance, mind you, but full of remorse. Now, disturbed emotions, then, are the surface level which say to us, you have a problem. You have a problem. J. Adams, uh, perhaps the most famous writer in this area of personal problems and counselling and relationships and so forth, has suggested that we may use the analogy of that which is rather irreverently called in cars the idiot light. You know what the idiot light is, don't you? A little red light on the uh, panel that glows red when you've got a problem. Your oil pressure is departing. Uh, that red light comes on. It's saying you've got a problem in this car. Now, Jay Adams says there's three things you might do in response to this. You're driving along, okay, in your car, and the red light comes on on the panel. What do you do? Well, you might say, oh, that's a nuisance. I don't like that red light. I'm just going to ignore it. So you look at the windshield, you keep driving along, you ignore it totally. Well, you know what's going to happen. At least I hope you know what's going to happen. Even I know what's going to happen. And you know how I am with cars. But you know, if you ignore that light, you've got trouble ahead. You're going to have trouble. Or Adam says, well, you could maybe, you see the red light, you pull up onto the side of the road, you go into the trunk, into the toolbox, you get out the hammer, you come back and you smash the light, right? You say, I'll fix this light, I'll make this light glowing. Smash, smash, smash. You smash the light, that's fixed it. Back with the hammer, no more red light. Tremendous. Carry on along. That doesn't solve the problem, does it? But some people do that. Or, on the other hand, of course, you can stop the car and you can lift up the hood and you can try to find out what's wrong or you can go to a gas station straight away and you can find out what the problem is. But the point is, you see, that the red light is a warning. I, I thought maybe I'd add a thought to that that you could open the glove compartment, take out some black tape and mask over the light and that'll solve the problem as well. That's a fourth thing. Mask it over. You see, all of that is foolish because, of course, it doesn't deal with the problem except to stop the car, find out what's wrong. The emotional level in our life, our emotions, are like that red light in, in the car. It is saying to us something is wrong. When we are disturbed, when we are angry, when we are bitter, uh, when we have guilt feelings, when we are depressed, all of these things is saying something is wrong. Look under the hood which by interpretation, of course, in the analogy means look at your life. Look at yourself. 
What is the problem? This is telling you you've got a problem. Now, again, you can do all the things that we mentioned before. When we are emotionally upset and disturbed, we can either ignore it, or we can resort to violent action, and some people, we said last week, they smash their marriages, you see. They get the hammer to the marriage. You've got a problem in the marriage? Smash it up. Problem with your wife? Smash her. Problem with your children? Smash them. Some people react this way. They get the hammer or you can resort to what I suggested, masking the problem. And some people, of course, they've got problems, they're disturbed emotionally. They go to the bottle, they go to alcohol. Others will go to drugs. Others will go to just frenetic activity, dashing hither and yon, being involved in all kinds of things. What are they doing? They are masking the problem. What we ought to do is get under the hood, as it were, and look at ourselves and see, what is the problem here? Why do I feel this way? Why am I this way in my emotional life? See, those unpleasant feelings serve a very valuable purpose. A very valuable purpose. It's like pain. In the physical realm of things, it's like pain. Pain is very valuable. Now, nobody likes pain. I don't think. A few strange peoples do. People, uh, of course, I'm speaking of P-A-I-N, by the way, not P-A-Y-N-E here. Nobody likes pain, P-A-I-N. Right? I've never heard anybody yet who said, Doctor, this is wonderful, I'm having a gallbladder attack. I got these pains and it's so delightful. Now there may be some weird, strange people like that, but most of us don't like pain. But what would happen if we went to the doctor and we said, Doctor, I've got uh, very intense pains in my chest. And the doctor said, well, don't worry, just ignore it, ignore it. Go home, there's a good football game on TV tonight, go watch the football game. Just get your mind off it, get your mind off it. Well, so you went home and you tried to get your mind off it, but these pains continued. So you go back and you say, Doctor, these pains continue in my chest. Well, he says, okay, come over here, I'll fix it. And he says, I'm going to give you a shot. Gets a shot, gives you a shot, morphine, whatever. That'll fix it. Now that doctor would be highly irresponsible if they did that, right? What are they doing? They're just masking the problem. See, the pain is saying, or ought to be saying to the doctor, Doctor, there's something wrong with this body. There's a problem here, doctor. That's what the pain's saying. Hey, there's a problem here. And the doctor ought to say, well now, where exactly is this pain? Can you describe this pain to me? Does it radiate to other parts of the body? When do you get it? Is it connected with other things? They have to ask these questions because they know, if they're good doctors, they know that that pain is valuable, it's telling them something, and they have to find the cause of it. Well, the same holds true in the way of the emotions, you see. Don't mask them over, don't smash them. Don't ignore them. They're saying to you, listen, you've got a problem. Find out what it is. That's the emotional level. The A stands for the action level. A stands for action. Because many of our problems stem from the fact that we do what God tells us we ought not to do. Or they stem from the fact that we do not do what God says we ought to do. Now, did you notice that remarkable psalm that Don read for us this morning? Psalm number 38, I suggested he read this, particularly because David reveals in this psalm the amazing reality that sometimes our sin can affect us not only emotionally but physically. Physically. How extraordinary are his words. Verse 3, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor is there any health in my bones because of my sin. 
For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I'm troubled, I'm bowed down greatly, I go mourning all the day long, for my loins are full of inflammation, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken, I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. You see, things can affect us physically, our sin can affect us physically. What we do or don't do can affect us physically. And Psalm 38 is a remarkable revelation of that. But let's come back to what we were saying before. I said that some people often get depressed. They are miserable. They are very unhappy. Now you see we have to ask questions and if you're in this state you have to ask yourself questions. What are some of the questions you have to ask? Well you need to ask when did this state begin? When did I begin to be like this? When did I begin to feel this heaviness and this miserable condition? Think about that. What else was happening at the time? What else was happening when this all began to start? And you know, sometimes things begin to come to life that help to understand our present condition. For instance, you may discover that this depression began just after you had an argument with a fellow church member and you've never straightened it out. You've not done what the scripture says you ought to do. For it says that if we are out of fellowship, out of friends, if we have a problem on an interrelational type with another Christian, we are to fix that. We are to straighten that out. We are to go to our brother and, and say, listen, if I've offended you, please tell me because we ought not to be in this kind of a situation. We are to endeavour to get things right with our brother. And there are people who when they begin to think about their unhappiness and their depression, they go back and say, yes, that's when I had this argument with Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. And you know, it's just been left that way. Neither of us have tried to do anything about it. And sometimes they trace back this sense of unhappiness and, and uh, depression to that. Now they have to go and do what God tells them to do. They have to straighten that out according to the principles of the word of God. It may be, for instance, that it's not that, that you've had a problem with another church member, but maybe here we have a housewife, perhaps. And the housewife is beginning to feel rather depressed and down and unhappy. And what is happening? Well, what's happening is that the housewife is neglecting her duties. Instead of cleaning up the house and getting it nice and keeping it neat and doing the things she should uh, be doing if she's a homemaker and keeping the place and uh, doing the washing and uh, all the rest of it, she's neglecting that. She's sitting in front of the television for hours a day and when she's not in front of the television she's on the phone for the rest of the hours of the day and so her duties are being neglected and she begins to feel guilty about that and depressed about that and the more depressed she feels the more she neglects her duties and the more she neglects her duties the more she gets depressed and it becomes a downward spiral and there's only one way to stop it do what you ought to do do what God would have you to do don't say I don't feel like it that goes back to last week right are we to do what we feel or are we to do what God says we are to do do what you're to do it's not just the ladies, of course, in this situation. The man at work can be of the same kind. He begins to feel depressed and down. Well, well, when did it all begin? Well, it began perhaps when they began to neglect their duties in the office. 
And to allow all those things to pile up while they talk to their friends about the latest sporting event or the political scene or whatever. And the only way to reverse that kind of thing is to do what we are to do, to do that which is our duty, our God-given duty. It may be there are financial problems. You begin to think, when did I start getting down and depressed? And you begin to think back, ah, yes, financial difficulties began to pile up. All right, why did they begin to pile up? Was it because you began to be rather foolish, immature, irresponsible in your financial dealing? Did you begin to spend more than you should? More than you could afford? Did you begin to buy things that you really couldn't afford? You didn't need, you could have done without. I tell you, friends, I am amazed, I am really amazed, and I have been over the years, at the, the number of people I've come across in pastoral relationships who, who unwisely handle money. And they buy things they can't afford, they buy things they don't need, they buy things they, they buy, you know, a $2,000 item, they could have got it for maybe 500 or oh, it has to be this, it has to be this. Yeah, but then they get in so then they're depressed, then they're down and so forth. So you have to ask yourself, when did this happen and in conjunction with what did this begin? Sometimes it'll give some light. Some people are fearful and guilty, we have said. And uh, the problem here again sometimes relates to the action level. Why are certain people guilty and fearful? Well, it's with the case of some, they're fearful of being discovered because they are doing things that they ought not to be doing. When a man is having an affair with someone, he's a married man having an affair with someone, maybe in the office or whatever, he's fearful. He's always fearful lest that be exposed and revealed. What's the problem? He's doing something that's wrong. What's the answer? Quit doing it. Repent of it. And turn from it. See, that action of doing something that God says we ought not to do is liable to produce this kind of fearful business because you're scared of being discovered. It may be that perhaps someone has been embezzling funds at work. wouldn't be the first time that's happened, would it? People siphoning up funds, afraid of it being discovered. Fearful. Or in some cases, people feel guilty because they know that they're doing wrong things and they do not will not stop it and so sometimes young people have guilt and fear because they are sexually involved in ways that they know they ought not to be they know that when they're alone they start doing things that they ought not to do and instead of handling that rightly and wisely and saying alright we must not do these things and if we put ourselves in situations where we are tempted and inevitably fall, then let's not get into those situations. Instead of doing that, they just continue to do it and the guilt and the fear builds up within them. No, no, my friends, the way to, to, to deal with it is to cease doing what God says we ought not to do or to begin doing what God says we ought to do. And what about people who are full of bitterness? Well, you say, what's, what's the problem? Well... People don't treat me right. People don't treat me right. I've heard so a lot of people say that. People don't like me. They don't want my company. But sometimes, you know, the answer is found by turning the whole thing around. People don't treat me right, someone says. And the question I want to ask is, well, how do you treat other people? How do you treat other people? Are you a critical person? Are you a complaining person? Are you a negative person? 
Are you a person always finding fault with others, always groaning, always moaning, always looking on the black side? Well, frankly, it's no, I'm not at all surprised that people don't particularly like your company. It's not surprising that people steer clear if you like Every pastor, you know, every pastor has people that says, this friend church isn't friendly. This church isn't friendly. I've got no friends in this church. <laughs> Nobody ever invites me over for, for, for supper or whatever. I say, well now, have you ever invited anybody else over for supper? Do you invite people to your place? You keep inviting them. You know, there's a biblical principle of keeping coals of fire on people's heads, you know. There's a biblical principle about that. Some Christians are so dumb and so thick that it takes a lot of fire to get through to them, you see. So you've invited them to your house five times and they've never invited you back. Keep going. Sooner or later, they're going to say, you know what? We've been over to that fellow's house 15 times and they've never been here. Yeah, it'll get through to them, you know. But have you invited others? How do you treat others? He that would have friends says the scripture must show himself friendly. Are you doing what the scripture says you ought to do? So this is the action level, right? Are we doing what God tells us to do? Are we not doing those things God tells us not to do? Problems arise sometimes because of that area. Remember last Sunday morning I said, sin leads to unhappiness. Holiness leads to happiness. It is a principle that is true. We should know it. Sin leads to unhappiness. Holiness leads to happiness. God has linked them together. Now C, that leads us to C. It stands, stands for the conceptual level. The concept, right? The conceptual or the thought level. Now I want you to look at a verse of scripture in Romans 14, which is a very, very significant statement from Paul. Romans 14 and the end of verse 14. Paul says, but to him who considers anything to be unclean, for him it is unclean. You see that? To him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Now that's a very profound statement that we need to understand in terms of handling problems, right? At this conceptual level, this thought level. Because what Paul is saying is that if a person has been taught that a certain thing is wrong and this has been drummed into them and they are convinced it may not be wrong but to them it is wrong it is wrong he gets into this of course in Romans 14 this whole question about eating meats offered to idols he deals with the same kind of thing in Corinthians and there were Corinthians who quite rightly said it doesn't matter really what kind of meats we eat all, all meats are sanctified by the word of God and prayer it doesn't matter ah yes says Paul but if someone has been told that a certain kind of meat is wrong to eat to him it is wrong it is sinful to that person now problems arise in people when false information has been drummed into them when they have been taught to believe something for which there's no real biblical foundation. Now I know nothing about computers except I hear this saying garbage in, garbage out. Right? Garbage in, garbage out. 
if you put garbage into a person you'll get garbage out if you imbibe wrong ideas and wrong thoughts and wrong concepts that's what's going to come out now let me give you some examples let me give you a very relevant example for our congregation right if people are taught and they imbibe from their youth the idea that it is wrong for a minister to wear a light coloured suit or to smile in the pulpit if they are taught that that somehow makes him to be less than a man of God then to that person it is so now I say it's be okay today for me I have my domine suit on today but if they come in the summer and they have the same preacher with the same preaching the same kind of ministry but he's wearing his beige suit is he therefore less than a man of God? Of course not. Of course not. But here's a person who's been taught that. They've been told that. If a man smiles in the pulpit, if he makes a humorous remark, if he wears a, a light-colored jacket or suit, he is less than a man of God. That's been put in, 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 and therefore he comes out. His concept is that. And the tragedy is, of course that therefore if he is for some reason under the ministry of such a person he'll get nothing from that person's ministry he is immediately prejudiced against that person he wears a light suit therefore he can't be a man of God he smiles in the pulpit he says humorous things therefore he has nothing to say that can edify him that's tragic that is utterly tragic my friend. there is no biblical foundation for that but it's been programmed in you put garbage in garbage comes out and in his concept, he's got a wrong concept of what a man of God is. Let me give you some other examples. What about a young woman who's been taught that sex is dirty? Sex is dirty. Horrid. Unclean. Something that's never talked about, or if it is talked about, her mother tells her all the time, gives her this negative impression, something ah, dirty. Now our young people need to understand, I hope having been under my ministry for some years, they know this, that when we talk about sexual activity outside of marriage and so forth being wrong, and when we condemn that, that that is not condemning sexuality itself, of course. Not condemning sex. Man was a sexual creature before the fall. Before the fall. Sex is not related to sin and to the fall. The important thing, of course, to remember is that sexual activity must be guided and directed and controlled by the Word of God. And so, the Word of God says that sexual relationships between a man and a woman must be within the bands of marriage. There it is good, delightful, wholesome, clean, pure, wonderful, to be enjoyed. Absolutely. Young people must certainly know that. What happens when this young lady has been told all her life from a little girl that sex is a dirty thing in and of itself, unclean, horrid, wretched business? Well, she falls in love and she marries a young man. And my, oh my, oh my, they got problems in their marriage. Because she's got a wrong concept. She's got an unbiblical concept. It's been drummed into her. Well, what about the young man who's been told from the early days that God is the kind of God who's just sitting around in heaven just waiting to smash him. You know that kind of teaching? God just loves it. He's just up there with a big 
hammer, you know, and he's just waiting for that guy to step out of line and bang, and God says, ha, I've got him that time. And again, bang, you know. This is God. What a monstrous caricature of God. But people are told this sometimes, just waiting, you know, to smash people. What's happening? He grows up terrified of God. More than that, he grows up bitter against God. He grows up hating God. Don't wonder. This totally negative attitude. What about the child who's told constantly, the bogeyman will get you. It'd be bad, the bogeyman's going to get you, you know. Sometimes he's told the policeman will get you. Or the police, he's always told the policeman will get you, the policeman will get you. Maybe sometimes the pastor will be brought in to see you. The pastor will get you, you know. You know what happens to those kind of kids? They grow up being people who revolt against authority. They revolt against authority. They are resentful of authority. They are fearful of anybody in a position of authority. What about the child who is constantly told that, oh, to the pity of it that a multitude constantly told you're no good I wish I'd never had you you're a disaster you're stupid you're dumb constantly constantly it's all it's told all the time through their childhood days you're dumb you're dumb you're stupid I'm sorry I had you shame on any parent that acts that way treats their children that way desperate and then they wonder why their child grows up with a poor self-image and no confidence and that leads them to other problems and so on. Don't do that, mums and dads. Don't do that. Of course the children have to be rebuked when needed. Of course they have to be disciplined and so forth. Of course. You know me well enough to know that I'm totally in agreement with biblical discipline. But it's not biblical discipline to be constantly telling kids they're dumb, they're stupid, they're no good, you wish you'd never had them. That's going to cripple them emotionally and psychologically. You see, I'm trying to illustrate this whole idea of wrong concepts. Wrong concepts. And what is the answer to this? The answer is to retrain the mind and to retrain it in accordance with the teachings of the Word of God. To teach the mind the things that are biblical. You remember the wonderful statement of Paul in Romans 12.2 where he says we are to be renewed in our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is not a bad thing for people to question things. There are churches and reformed Baptist churches are not free of this problem. There are churches when the authoritarian structure is so heavy and so heavy-handed and authoritarianism is so much in the saddle that nobody is ever allowed to ask a question. Nobody is ever allowed to question anything that goes on in the church. Never allowed, never dare to question the pastor or what he says or whatever, the minister. That's foolish. That's cultism. We ought to feel that we are able and free without threat to ask questions. Our elders, myself, our deacons, they ought to be happy for our members to come and say, why is this done this way? Why do you take this position? Why do things operate this way? That's all right. I don't mind you questioning me. 
I don't mind you asking me why I say a certain thing, why I take a certain position. You know that. I don't want you to be robots, just parroting things. I want you to know, especially when we get to the, the real things, of course, I want you to be able to be into the Scriptures and know that it's because the Word of God says this or that or the other thing. But you see, our minds have to be retrained by the Word of God. Programmed by Scripture. Not by tradition. Not necessarily even by other things we've been told as we've been brought up. What says the Scripture? Let's bring all that we believe, all that we do, to the touchstone of Scripture. I remember having a long debate with a certain couple of people and uh, in the course of the discussion I kept saying to them well now what about this scripture I kept bringing them into the scripture what about this scripture and after a few minutes in that and they realized that the, the scripture was saying something other than what they were believing they kept saying ah oh, but this isn't the way I was brought up I said never mind that what does this say in the Bible ah oh, but that's not what I was told when I was brought up maybe not but is what you were told true? That's the question. Is what you were told biblical? Is the concept that people, I say, have conceptual problems because they've been taught wrong things, erroneous things. Sometimes people are in bondage. Sometimes dear people are in bondage because they have been told erroneous things. And when they come to a biblical understanding and a biblical concept, they're delivered from that. And it's certainly a liberation to them so often. The conceptual level. Are we thinking? Are we thinking according to the word of God? And the last thing is the H. Well that stands for the habitual level. The habitual level of things. See we all operate on this level. I can, let me prove it to you. When you got out of bed this morning. What happened? Did you lie there and think well now how am I going to do this? Yep, first I throw back the blankets, right? Then I move the left leg out over the side of the bed. Then I move the right leg. You didn't think that way, did you? You did it automatically. Why not? Because it's a, a habit with you. Now when little children fasten their shoelaces, boy, it's a big deal, right? When you get up today, you fasten it. I fasten my hand. Let's see. Let's see this one going over here. This goes over here. You didn't do that, did you? It's done like that. Why? Because you've been doing it. You've got any years on you at all, you've been doing it thousands and thousands. Of it's a habit. It's a habit to get out of bed. It's a habit to fasten your shoelaces. So, habits all over us. Now, there are bad habits, but habits are not necessarily bad. Right? There are bad habits. But habits are not necessarily bad. We all live with habits. In fact, habit in many ways is a great thing if they're good habits. And sometimes problems arise because of our habits. We have learned to do things habitually and therefore when the right thing is triggered, boom, we do it. Now, I'll, I'll confess, it won't come to as any strange confession. I'll tell you something I do all the time, you know. 
If I, if I go a certain direction most of the time, a certain direction, I'm apt to come out of the road where our house is and turn that direction. And it may be that I want to go in the other direction, but nine times out of ten, I, I'm, I'm suddenly thinking, hey, whoa, I'm going the wrong way here. Why is that? It's because it's an automatic reaction. And it, it comes out because you've done it so many times. But this has serious implications. Very serious implications. So, for instance, a child, a child learns that he or she gets his or her own way by throwing a temper tantrum, right? Ah, yes. The little darling finds out that if they scream and holler and stomp on the floor, you know, and bang their fists and throw this temper tantrum, mum and dad's always given their own way. Oh, you're a fool if you do that. You're a fool. You're a fool if you give children their own way because they throw a temper tantrum. Do you know what happens? This little fellow grows up and he gets married. And his wife happens to disagree with him. You know what he does? He screams, he hollers, he shouts, he slashes the furniture, he breaks the plates. Why does he do that? Because he's always done it and always got his own way right from the word go doing that. Yes, that happens. Here's another child and they're brought up in a very rough neighborhood, very rough district. And they find that they use their fists and they get what they want. Someone stands in their way, bang. Now, there are millions of kids growing up like this in our world, you know. I mean, this isn't the world of fantasy and make-believe I'm talking about. There are kids growing up and that's the way they find out. That's what they get, what they want. Someone stands in their way, even if it's their own brother in their own family. Bang! Bang! The fists get them what they want. Ah, now this person also grows up and he gets married. And his wife poses this person and denies him what he wants to have. What happens? Bang! Before he knows it, he's hit him. Oh, it's horrifying. He can't imagine why he loves this woman. He really loves this woman. Why has he done that? Because he's been programmed by habit to do that. And nobody ever broke him up. Or you take the person, the young person, who's taught to run away from problems. Run away from problems. They're never made to face up to the responsibilities of their own actions. Never made to face responsibilities. Parents always covering for them. Foolish parents who do that. There's plenty of them. Always covering. It's always the other guy's fault. Run from problems. What happens? When they grow up, they get married. Problems in the marriage? Run from the marriage. They join a church. Problem in the church? Run from the church. Run, run. Financial problems? Get out of town. Run, run, run. Because, you see, they have become habitual in these ways, you see. So the habit level is a frequent source of problems. Now, children often learn bad habits from their parents. And I'm saying this as a parent, so parents don't get mad with me because I'm saying this as a parent, right? Children frequently learn bad habits from their parents. Children often grow up and reflect their own parents. Children are apt to be like their parents. 
The old Puritan Thomas Watson had a delightful expression. He used to say, children are parents in another skin. Children are parents in another skin. Yeah, well that's okay, except that if the parents have very bad habits, the children can grow up with those same habits. And we have to understand that. Young people, you have to understand this. You may grow up working out the bad habits and the problem behavior of your parents. But the glorious thing about the message of the Bible is it does not have to be that way. We do not have as Christians to be slaves to bad habits. And this I think is extremely important for us to grasp. This is hope for all of us who are believers. And I said last week, this series, I'm basically talking to those who are believers in Jesus Christ, who are vitally related to him by faith. The message of the scripture is a hopeful message. We do not have to be slaves to bad habits. There is such a thing in our day called psychological determinism. What does that mean? Well, it means the psychologist would say, oh, well, you've got a problem. Well, he comes down to this. He says, you are the way you are because of the environment you've been brought up in now just accept yourself as you are and get on with it so here's a person been brought up in, in, in a, a home where mother brought in three different boyfriends every week and this person is involved in wrongful sexual relationships with a variety of partners and they go to the psychologist he says well listen because of your environment you've been brought up this way Accept yourself as you are, just carry on, do the best you can. Now, not all psychologists say that. Those who are committed to this idea of psychological determinism very often say things like that. The Word of God says, no, it doesn't have to be that way. You can change. You can be changed. The grace of God and the power of the Spirit of God and the ability of God is able to cause us to change. That bad habits can be repulsed and rejected and we be freed from them. Thank God for that. Paul makes a wonderful statement in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, one of the most wonderfully encouraging statements in the Bible. He says, but we all, speaking of believers, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We are in the process of being changed from one degree of glory to another until ultimately we'll be in perfected glory. But we are now even being changed by the power of the Spirit, by the Word of God, by the grace and ability of God. Change is possible. You don't have to be slaves to bad habits. The lion can be made there to lie down with the lamb. The barren desert of your life, my dear friend, is able to blossom as the rose. That empty life can be made full. Despair can be turned to hope. Because of God. And because of the word of God. And the grace of God. And the spirit of God. And the gospel of God. 
How wonderful of the Apostle Paul. Having given to the Ephesians in chapter 3 a very challenging exhortation. He said, I'm praying that God would grant you, verse 16 of chapter 3 Ephesians, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. To know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And we say, oh Paul, how could this ever be true of me? And he says, now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you ask or even think according to the power that works in us to him be glory in the church that's the secret you see that's the secret do we believe this Christians do, you, do we believe it this morning if you are a believer in Christ do you believe this element of the word of God that he is able to change us. That we can be transformed ongoingly. That we can be delivered from the past and the chains of the past and the habits of the past. Oh my friend, believe it. For it's the word of God. He is able to do exceeding abundantly according to the power that works. So I say to you that this little acrostic might be helpful as we grapple with our problems. What about that emotional level? Is it telling us? Have a look in. What about those actions, those things that we're doing or not doing? What about our minds and the concepts that we have? Are they according to Scripture? What about those habits? They need changing. Well now next Sunday morning, God willing, I'm going to conclude by trying to demonstrate some biblical principles as to how we implement the kind of things that we'd want to implement in order for the solving of these problems. But we have to understand them before we solve them. And this helps us, I think, in some measure to understand. But you know, having talked about God's power and work within us I cannot but close on the same note as I closed last Sunday morning and say that we cannot know the power and the help of God unless we know God and unless the spirit of God is in us and unless the word of God is in our hearts unless otherwise in other words we are saved people <coughs> unless we are right with God in communion with him and I ask you this morning my friend to search your hearts because it may be that this fundamental foundation of all problems is yours this morning that you don't know Christ that you've never entered into a saving relationship with him by faith having turned from sin and come to him who is the saviour Maybe that's the beginning for you this morning. If it is, I beseech you in the name of Christ that you begin there. And hear the voice this morning of him who says, Come unto me and I will give you rest. 
who says come unto me and I will receive you look unto me and you shall be saved go to him may the Lord then help us to grapple with our problems in such a way that he will be glorified and our lives will be fruitful lives 